This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. We've got a full house in our Wharton studio today. We have Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Off at Wisdom Tree, and two special guests, JC Peretz of All Star Charts and Timothy Hussar of Wharton Hill Advisors. Uh, we'll get to our, our guests here in just a minute, but uh, our discussion is not tied to the office of investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of which are state affiliates. Professor Siegel, we've got a great year-end show going into the holidays, uh, sort of our last live show of 2019, and maybe we could get you to sort of recap the year, look ahead to 2020, all-time highs. What are you thinking for, for next year? Well, you know, what's going on in December is pretty much exactly what we've been saying. I said if we get a trade deal that, uh, you know, it's not a full deal, but pushes off those 25% tariffs, um, it's going to be a great December. It's a great December hitting all-time highs. Everyone that hasn't been in the market has got to get in the market and show something. So we're, we're getting a lot of catch-up uh, here. I'm, I'm not at all surprised that it's, uh, that it's hitting highs. Uh, the data basically mixed on, on target. Uh, you know, we got the third estimate of, of the um, third quarter GDP stayed at 2.1. People I follow say this quarter is 1.8. Um, uh, there's been some little minor changes. PCE deflator was a tiny bit hotter than expected, but still well under what is the 2% target of the Federal Reserve. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't see anything saying we keep our eye on those jobless claims. They've been a little bit higher for two weeks, but there is volatility at year end. I wouldn't particularly worry about that. Um, I think 2020 is going to be more challenging because of the fact that uh, we're starting from a very high base in December. As you remember, we had a Christmas collapse last year. <laughs> oh, it sent the, sent the S&P down 20%. And um, part of this year is really just a snapback from a, uh, a crazy sell-off that we had last year. So 2020 will have to deal with a melt-up uh, in this year. Um, and it's going to be more challenging. I still think we're going up next year, but I would be really surprised if we exceeded a 10% uh, increase, and mainly because we're, we're selling at 20 times earnings. So no recession, but uh, I, I don't see factors that are you know, certainly going to drive it that much higher. I got a little bit of preview from our, our guests here. What they're going to talk, what they're going to be interested to talk about on rates. Um, you know, this sort of low for longer. There is that part of your worldview. Yeah. How do you think about the the trading range this year? It surprised a lot of people how much the ten year fell. Like, yeah. do you, what's your view for next year? Well, I think the the uh, again uh, the the tremendous. Demand for U.S. Treasuries has to do with the, the negative bait of those Treasuries, the hedge asset demand. Um, if there's a lot of uncertainty, people go to Treasuries, the rate will go down. If there's more confidence in the economy and less, uh, uh, more of a risk-on attitude, uh, Treasury yields are going to go up. Um, how Not a lot up because it's, it's still a, a great hedge asset. Um, but if we get continued growth, you know, I can see it going above two, but not much more above two and a quarter. I don't see anything really spurring it above there. You know, it's sort of in the 175, two and a quarter range. Um, and uh, on the rates, the Fed, of course, because it's a political year and a presidential year with all of the, you know, back and forth between Trump, is going to try to keep the rate as stable as possible. And the market expects it, and the market is comfortable with that. 
The only thing that would change that if a sudden change turned out of weakness suddenly came up, then, you know, they would be pushed towards uh, weakening. Uh, I'm what could possibly push it up an unexpected tightening uh, real heat in the in the labor market and all that, but uh, you know I just don't see that happening. So um, at this point, market's comfortable with with no increases, and and uh, that's what the Fed is on target to do, and that means, uh, in my opinion, a ten year between one and three quarters and two and a quarter. JC Tim, any views for the professor to counteract or questions to get involved with in here? Uh, just one question for you, Professor. This is Tim Usar. Yeah, Tim. Um, with inflation low and the Fed holding pretty steady at one and three quarters to two, does that mean we're in for a new normal with respect to market valuations? Well, that's a that's a very you know that's a very interesting point. I, I say that there's there's the new normal market variations is 80, 18 to twenty, maybe even twenty one times earnings, um, and two factors. One is because we got lower yields. Uh, but a second factor is the tremendous ease at which uh, individuals can diversify and basically index the world market at no cost, uh, which uh, leads to a much more favorable risk-return trade-off, which would send stock prices higher. So those two factors, I think, do give us a new normal. 15, I think, is a, the very old normal PE of the 19th and early 20th century. It doesn't make sense in the 21st century. Uh, a higher PE definitely makes sense. A higher PE does, however, mean that you're not likely to get the six and a half to seven percent real returns on equities going forward. So a 20 PE corresponds to a five percent real return on equities going forward, which is still, you know, virtually five percentage points above Treasuries, which is still a nice risk premium, um, but a, um, a somewhat lower. Uh, re return uh, going forward. Hey, Professor J.C. Peretz here. How are you? Yes, fine. So when you talk about uh, where you think uh, 10 years is going to go, you, you got, got a cap around uh, 215, two and a quarter, right? That just, uh, you know, our data suggests that is consensus, right? I'm just not seeing any data out there, you know, suggesting that rates can go much higher than that, right? Getting above two and a quarter, getting towards two and a half and even 3%, the bet we've been making and continue to bet is that that is uh, what's gonna happen and there'll be a lot of selling pressure in the bond market. Where does sentiment fit into your overall outlook? Well, you know, what could really do it, I mean, we get strong growth and we break out of this, you know, 1.82% GDP and go up to two and a half, three, that should generate higher rates. Um, uh, if we have a kind of a melt-up in the market and people say, oh, my, you know, then, we, you know, then, then it's, it's all risk on, the people are going to dump treasuries, and that will lead towards those higher rates. Now, those are, mar those are, those are you know, one factor that's good. The, the bad factor, of course, which is, you know, is if, if somehow the labor market tightens dramatically, get unemployment down to 3.4, 3.3, that really puts some inflationary pressures on there. Um, uh, but I think if there's higher growth, it's likely to be caused by higher productivity, which won't put those inflationary pressures on. But a very risk-on attitude will put upward pressure on yields because uh, the treasuries are the uh, the risk, the hedge risk asset. So people, you know, feel so confident about the economy they don't want those hedges. You know, you you could move to the two and a quarter, two and a half range on the treasuries, but that would be something that would probably still be favorable for equities. And when you talk about the inflationary pressures, right, particularly unemployment, where do, where do commodities fit there? I mean, this is just an asset class that's been left for dead, making, you know, continuing to just not produce and provide returns. If we start to get some rotation into some of those areas, particularly in energy, I have to believe that's probably one of the catalysts to get rates up there. Yeah, well, you know, commodities have been relatively quiet, um, you know, and, and with growth, you know, I mean, if growth ramped up both in, you know, all around the world, Europe emerging and all the rest, there might be some more pressures on commodities. That could, that could be a turn. I mean, oil has its own issues. Um, I mean, one, one, one expert actually said to me that now that there's an Aramco stock out there that Saudi wants to maintain, they may more 
want to do cuts on oil production that would keep that uh, oil price from from going down. And um, there, there might be some truth to that. But, you know, basically, there's there's not a lot of real pressure on any of the commodities uh, right now. That being said, I mean, energy is selling so cheap relative to its price. I think the cheapest ever relative to the actual price of oil you don't need. I mean, if oil just stays at the same price, you're probably going to get a decent return in that uh, asset class. So you talk about those being possibilities, um, you know, those inflationary pressures and things like that. But that's just not the bet you want to be making, you know, rates above three next year? Uh, on the treasuries, I'd be really surprised. Nothing is impossible. I mean, <laughs> uh, let's put it this way. A year ago, when uh, you know, when when the treasuries were all in 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 that, what, did we ever expect it to be down one and a half? <laughs> no. So you know, uh, you, you know, uh, but I I it, it's it's hard for me to see the the rates going up to three. And if they go up to three, it would be uh, actually positive for equities, stronger productivity growth, risk off, which would cause people to leave that equities, stronger growth, which would mean a little bit more inflation in the commodity space, which would also push those things upward. But it would be also associated with, to my extent, with, with a positive uh, look at, uh, uh, at the equity markets, too. Professor, thank you so much for taking some time with us here. Sure. Good, uh, good end of 2019. Looking yeah. forward to again in 2020. Yeah, happy holidays to all and uh, happy new year. Thanks, Professor. Thank you. We've got two guests in the studio with us. we got Tim Hussar, who's a partner, chief investment officer at Wharton Hill Investment Advisors. Another Wharton at Wharton mm -hmm. uh, campus here. So, Tim, okay. welcome to, to the studio. Thank you. And uh, J.C. Peretz, the founder, chief strategist at All Star Charts, a research platform for professionals, individuals, covering U.S. international rates, commodities, always looking at the markets around the world. It's going to be interesting discussion, J.C. Uh, so thank you for coming down to Wharton. Thank yeah, you. my GPA wasn't good enough uh, to get me uh, to this school. <laughs> but, uh, very smart on all your your charts, I got to say. Um, Tim, give us a little bit of background of Wharton Hill. How how did you come to the Wharton Hill name? What does your firm focus on? So Wharton Hill is unaffiliated with the Wharton Business School, but we came to the name with a uh, venture that we were joint partnered with uh, a company named Wharton Advisors. We were formerly Broyhill Asset Management, a multifamily office, and so when we partnered up, we combined our names together. Um, so Wharton Hill Investment Advisors is a wealth manager serving families, institutions, high net worth clients, uh, also some uh, individuals and business owners as well. And so we manage wealth for our clients and do full scale financial planning. And located here in Philadelphia suburbs, got, is your client base mostly Philadelphia based? Yeah, a lot of our clients are in the Philadelphia area, though we do have clients uh, out in the West Coast and down south as well. So we manage across the U.S. for our clients. And so, JC, how did you uh, come to founding All Star Charts and focusing on on the charts? You know, it, nothing else seemed to work, Jeremy. I mean, this is really the the easy answer. Um, you know, I kind of hit that fork in the road where it was really time to learn something. You know, do I really want to focus more on fundamentals and and go that route, or and learn about companies, or do I want to uh, learn about stocks and learn about technicals? And it seemed at the time, this was like 2006, seemed like a easy decision, a wise choice at the time. But man you know, how important that decision would ultimately be. So, I, I, you know, I was pretty early in the blogosphere, particularly in technical analysis at a blog. It basically just a way for me to talk about what I'm seeing. You know, I find that writing is incredibly therapeutic, whether you share it with the world like I do or whether you just keep it to yourself. You know, I think putting ideas down on paper keeps you honest. I really like that. And then as soon as I started the blog, you know, I started getting phone calls from, you know, all the networks that you're familiar with and, you know, getting invited to go speak at various universities and things like that. And ultimately, hedge funds and banks and people around the world that needed to put a lot of money to work we're asking for more. And they're like, why don't you do this more consistently? And then finally I gave in. Uh, this was about five years ago. And I was like, all right, you know, if nobody buys it, I still have to do the homework. <laughs> so I got to trade for myself, got to make the trades. That's it. So, you know, it turned into a research platform. And, you know, full disclosure, I really underestimated just how much demand there is for mm -hmm. technical analysis and all the work that we do just globally, all mm -hmm. over the world. You know, we're in almost 100 countries. Yeah, I just saw some trips from back from India, from Japan, uh, traveling the world. Those are two of my favorite places to visit. Uh, Mumbai is an absolutely amazing place. If you haven't made it out there, go check it out. And uh, Japan uh, no, needs no introduction. Uh, if you like 
uh, if you like food, just just go there hungry. Why don't we had we usually get Professor Siegel's top down view of the world, and he gave uh, you know his, his outlook for next year. Um, tell us your look at the charts, and what does the charts say for where we're going, previewing twenty twenty. You know, I, I still, I'm still, in, I'm in the camp that uh, we're we're in the process of this sentiment unwind. You know, I think that there's this misconception that we're in this ten year bull market. You know, I don't know what people are looking at that think that. When you look at Europe, the Euro stock 600 has done nothing for 20 years, nothing. The London FTSE 100 has done nothing for 20 years. Look at an emerging market uh, index um, going down for, you know, since 2011, you know, doing nothing. So I'm just not in the camp that we have been in any sort of decade-long bull market. And the the positive thing about that is that people has, have convinced themselves that that is the fact. And they think that this market is just long in the tooth or too high or whatever silly things that they say. Um, and I think that has created this sentiment that we are due for this correction or we're due for this bear market. You know, I look at you, the, you know, the S&P 500 have had three bear markets in the last 10 years, you know. So I'm more in the camp that we are near the beginning of a new bull market and not near the end of an old one for stocks. And is it global equities? Can global equities rise if the S&P struggles? Like if people get worried about valuations in the U.S.? Um, can can the global markets do well? Well, U.S. has outperformed tremendously because we have a ton of technology yeah. that other countries mm-hmm. around the world just don't have. Canada it has been doing nothing because they're a Lies. bunch of natural resources yeah. and banks, you know, not tech. Um, you know, so that's a big problem. But then when you look at something like Taiwan breaking out to new all-time highs after going nowhere for 25 years, I mean, that is just not evidence of a long uh, a long bull market. No, it's, it's, uh, it's evidence that we've been in a 25-year bear market out there, and now we're finally resolving higher. Same thing with London, same thing with Eurostock 600. You know, Hang Seng in Hong Kong has done nothing since 2008. I mean, these 10-year bull market myths, I think... Uh, are one of the most bullish sort of uh, confusion, you know, investors have this confusion out there that I think is a big catalyst to send stocks not just a little bit higher, but a lot higher. Um, I think that's an interesting point. Um, The last 10 years, we've had three significant corrections, right? 2011 with that ceiling, 2015 and the 2016 with basically a soft recession in the U.S. across industrial and energy. And then last year, we had the worst December in equity markets since 1930. So it's not as if it's been euphoria this entire ride the last 10 years, right? What's the famous quote from Sir John Templeton? Bull markets die on euphoria. We haven't really had euphoria over the last 10 years. So from our perspective, markets or economies don't mature on time alone. So we do think that's an interesting point to make with respect to how far they could go along in the future. And it's a global market, right? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. people talk about the stock market like it's just what happens in these 50 states or or maybe just D.C. and New York, right? I mean, there's a massive global market and that's becoming more and more uh, interrelated with every day that goes by. So, I mean, if we're talking about stocks, I think it's important to recognize that we're talking about stocks as an asset class and not just what's happening in our domestic borders, right? And you, you teased Professor Siegel on the rates uh, on the two and a quarter. And you're right, nobody believes rates are going above two and a quarter, which probably means they are. But, you know, the uh, how, how's your look at the technicals on rates set up? Well, it's really, really interesting because we want to look at what the commercial hedgers are doing, right? And commercial hedgers, let me take you back a little over a year. Commercial hedgers in gold, for example, had their largest net long position of all time in gold going into the fourth quarter last year. Gold hedgers are never, never, ever long, right? They're always short to different varying degrees. They were actually net long for the first time ever. They nailed that. Gold did very well from there, right? Today, they now we are, you know, ending 2019. They have their largest net short position ever ever in Mm. gold while speculators are super net long right the most net long ever so if gold commercial hedgers have their biggest net short position ever and then you look at the copper markets and the hedgers have their largest net long position ever or that's starting to unwind a little bit but it's coming off the biggest position ever what that means to me is that when you look at a chart of copper versus gold a copper gold ratio and you overlay the u.s 10-year yield they are identical they're exactly the same 
So to me, the smart money currently has the largest net short position in bonds. And in other words, the biggest bet on higher interest rates of all time, hmm. ever. It, it, Yet sentiment is suggesting the opposite, which to me is the perfect storm. It, it's funny to look at, you know, this is where this technical analysis work goes and it's where this copper versus gold. I mean, I, I think, why, you know, when people listening, what what's the relationship? I mean, gold has been, in a way, it's a, po a proxy to bonds. You could say now it's a positive yielding carry asset because in in Europe they have negative yield. So the fact that you get That's zero is funny. like a positive carry asset <laughs> in for gold. So it has correlated with bonds. Um, and copper being this sort of growth oriented, that rates move with growth and copper is a signal for Chinese demand or whatever. Any other views on, on how why that ratio makes sense? Well, you know, I think humans, but as a fault, uh, just our you know heuristics. Like we're always looking for reasons to why we we always need a bedtime story to go to sleep happy and convince ourselves that we know why. But the truth is, none of us have any clue as to why. And, it, and quite frankly, it doesn't matter, right? But what I will tell you is, if you look at a, a ratio of copper versus gold and you overlay the U.S. ten-year yield. They look exactly the same. I mean, just take off. Correlation, causation. It's, 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 it's a joke how positively correlated they are. So that's really what's important. And then when you look at regional banks versus REITs, that ratio looks exactly like the U.S. 10-year as well. So what does that mean? To me, that means that that, that flight towards higher yielding securities like REITs because of lower rates is no longer the case, right? In fact, now it's the opposite, sympathy selling with higher rates, right, in the REITs. And then in regional banks, the market's betting, regional banks are gonna be doing very, very well. So I think we, we, we buy regional banks, we bet on higher interest rates, that means selling uh, bonds, that means we wanna continue to sell gold with the commercial hedgers as we have been mm -hmm. since September. That trade is working. Um, I get a lot of pushback when I say sell gold. Um, you know, people think that we're like in this new bull market. I don't buy that yet. Um, I think we need to be involved with base metals, which is an emerging market story. So what we think about interest rates, when you broaden out the implications of higher rates, I think there's a lot of things it's going everything. on. That's everything. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with JC Peretz, founder and chief strategist of All Star Charts. We've got Tim Thihusar, who's a CIO at Wharton Hill Investment Advisors. So Tim, as, as you think about your worldview and, mm -hmm. and talking to your clients, how they're positioned, they've got to be happy. It's been a it's been a good year for them, globally diversified. How do, how do you think about building portfolios for clients? It's been a great year for clients, and uh, of course they've been happy, and of course the first question out of their mouths is, we're at all-time high, should we be nervous? <laughs> so That's the skepticism, <laughs> that's the selling. It's an interesting dynamic, right? So one of the first things that I'll mention with our clients when they say, should I be putting new money to work in the markets at all-time highs is, let's look at the data, right? So over the last 60 years, if you invested in the market at any point in time over the next five years, you had about an 81% chance of a positive return. What if you invested when the market was at all-time highs? You had an 82% chance of a positive return. And the average return was actually a little bit higher, 8.8% annualized. So investing at all-time highs didn't necessarily matter for your odds of making a positive return as long as you were holding for a longer period of time, right? Where do we go from there with clients in terms of the conversation on the fundamentals? For me, the biggest thing is what the Fed is doing, right? So the Fed hiked rates three times last year. They said they were going to hike three more times this year. And then what did they do? They've cut rates three times this year. So why was that the case? Well, you can see the effect that higher rates has on the economy. We're a leveraged society, right? All of our homes are financed, our cars are financed, businesses operate on finance and debt to either invest in CapEx or to buy back their shares or to issue higher dividends, right? So the biggest detriment to the markets last year, in our view, was that yields were significantly higher. You were at 3.5% on the 10-year. Well, when yields came down to 1.5% this year, what happened? The markets did incredibly well. Consumers refinanced. The refinance rate over the last six months was basically the highest it's been in over a decade. What have companies done? They've leveraged their debt or they've refinanced their debt, and they're locking in rates for a junk-rated company can issue debt at 5.5% right now. An investment-grade rated company can issue debt at about 2% right now. It's incredibly cheap to bet, get money in this market. Same thing with consumers. They can get a 60-month auto loan at 0%. They can get their mortgage rate refinanced at 3.25%. So where I'm getting at with this is that all of those elements within the finance market make it incredibly attractive or incredibly healthy for consumers and businesses to operate. 
one of the things that we look at as, as a signpost for what could end this part of the cycle is how levered are consumers or how far over their skis are they, right? If you look at the savings rate for consumers in our economy, it's actually about 8%. Before the end of the last cycle, it was about 2%. So typically every cycle, you see people get more and more bullish. You see them get more and more enthusiastic about their finances. They spend more than they should. The recession occurs and they need to retrench. Consumers have really been scarred by 2008, right? It was a generational event for many people. And so I think that's caused people to be a lot slower to take on debt. And frankly, I think it sets up well for the consumer to not be a significant catalyst for accelerating growth, but at the very least, a stable growth engine for the economy going forward. I think that bodes well for the economy and the market in the U.S. Because our consumers have been scarred since 2008, but investors have been scarred. And mm -hmm. they're sort of perhaps that's why we haven't seen that ultimate euphoria that's sort of the end of the bull market. Mm -hmm. That's right. And so, you know, as we look at our client allocations and how we build portfolios, we definitely think markets can continue to go higher. We definitely think that the Fed being on hold is a positive sign for markets. However, for our investors who have had equity allocations over the last 10 years, that percentage of their pie has grown to a significant amount, right? Just simply by capital appreciation. Now, we don't know what the next shoot of drop will be. It looks like things with China have been patched over. It looks like with the Fed on hold, that's a positive sign for markets. Whether it's political volatility or another cause with a high hurdle rate that Professor Siegel mentioned, there could be some chop next year. There could be a potential recession two to three years down the road. What do we want to do with our client allocations that have seen equities increase so much in price for the last 10 years? We want to move defensive. Well, when you move a little bit more defensive in portfolios, where are you going to put your money? U.S. Treasury bonds are basically under 2% across the curve unless you want to own 30-year debt. If you go to Europe, $14 trillion worth of bonds have negative yields. I don't want to buy Austrian 100-year debt at basically a half a percent yield, right? So you can't necessarily go to the bond market. One of the areas that we've incorporated for our clients is alternative strategies, such as global infrastructure stocks and preferred securities issued by banks. I think those are two interesting areas with lower volatility, higher yields, the ability to still generate a decent return for clients, but also be a risk mitigation device if we do have periods of chop, or we'd hope not, but a recession at some point in time. So you're thinking about these global infrastructure and preferreds as equity light or mm -hmm. like as a hybrid or are you you're funding it? You're thinking about trying to get back to like a 60-40, maybe things are at 65-35 and you're trying to get back to 60-40 with infrastructure preferreds? That's exactly correct. And so it, it's difficult to say this is a fixed income replacement, right? So bonds still do serve their purpose in a portfolio because they are the most negatively correlated thing to risk assets when the markets drop, correct? So it's in a way to say... We're not going to overweight bonds, but we're going to trim some of the equity risk in the portfolio, mitigate the downside potential, and have something that's a diversifier versus your traditional U.S. equity allocation, which we still are positive on. We still think it has a very important place in the portfolio, but how we manage wealth for our clients is to say, we want our eggs in a number of baskets, correct? And we want to have sources of income, sources of return, and we want to have sources of volatility dampening. JC, now you hear him getting defensive, and you're like, oh, the markets are going higher. I know what's going through your head right now. No, listen, it, 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 it's all – I have no idea what's going to happen next, uh, you know, and, and neither does Tim. Nobody does, and, and we all know that going in. We're trying to make the best decisions we can knowing we have incomplete information, right? We have no idea what's going to happen. So we just got to do the best we can. It's all respect across the board. There's no question. Um, I – I'm I'm not in the defensive camp. I'm just I'm I'm just I'm not. I haven't been. You know, we were in the fourth quarter last year, sure, but that was then. This is now. Um, I think we need to be very, very aggressively long, like very aggressively long, and to not be, I think, is is incredibly irresponsible. Uh, you know, I think Amazon has 50% of upside. Think about the market capitalization of a company like Amazon. We're talking about 500 billion dollars in market cap. In, in these indexes, you know, I think Apple's got another 50% of upside, right? I think Microsoft's got another 50% of upside. How do you come up with that uh, ratio? Like, where, where do you think that comes from? Well, it, it the 50% the of upside in these names, it really is kind of like a theme that I've been noticing. Um, these targets are representative of, of cycles and, uh, you know, a, a lot of math and, and quantitative data that we Im implement into set our targets. 
Um, and those are the targets that we have moving forward over the next couple of years. So I have to think about what the implications are to the market of us being correct in that assessment. And, you know, in some cases, 40 to 50% upside targets in the names that I mentioned. What does that do to technology as an index? What does that do to the S&P 500 as an index? So much increase in market capitalization. And then when, I'm, when I, I say numbers like that, people are like, oh, my God, that is so high. Well, it's really not. Um, you know, we, we, when we talk about the Dow, the, the Dow Jones Industrial Average going to 40,000, you know, what are we talking about? A, a 35, 40% increase? Like, people think that's crazy. The NASDAQ did that this year. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not that crazy, number one. Number two, what's going to take us there is the big, is the big a question that I get. Technology just broke out above the two, March 2000 highs, and so did semiconductors, right? Which is great after doing nothing for two decades. But when you compare semis and tech as a sector, for that matter, relative to the overall market, we're not even halfway back to those 2000 highs. Hmm. So what's going to take us there? It's technology, in my opinion, that's going to take us there. It's the communication sector, if you will, uh, that's composed of things like Facebook and Google. I think those are the names that are going to get us there. And when people talk about how, you know, sometimes you always hear those stats, oh, it's only a few names leading the market higher. Well, you know, the, the, the best players are supposed to score all your points, right? LeBron James is supposed to at least be in the one or two of, of scoring for the game or the season, right? You know, it's no different in the market. Historically, the biggest names dragging the indexes higher is perfectly normal and consistent with bull markets in the past. Hi, Jesse. Very interesting. Uh, I think uh, uh, the question about technical analysis is a lot of questions about whether going forward is going to be a rotation versus, you know, just U.S. bull. So uh, there's some floating idea says, you know, the, the world is more uh, emerging market in the U.S., well, the Europe is going to be a squeeze. On the other hand, there's also uh, the another campus says, you know, international developer is really cheap and it will get, you know, the 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 um you know the allocation. A lot of uh, Wall Street banks are actually calling that to be outperformed than the U.S. What what are the technicals are saying from your point of view? Well, as long as the Wall Street banks are saying, it must be true, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's, I think there's two schools of thought. Number one. You know, you have things like technology, communications, consumer discretionary that's working and, and, and American stocks for that matter. It's working. It's been working. And you have the underperformance from emerging markets in Europe and Asia. Right. So if JC's right and the market's going to do what we think it's going to do, we're going to see Dow 40,000 and all these things, interest rates above three, all these things. You would think that in that environment, you're going to see that rotation into Asia, emerging markets, Europe. And you're because they've just been beaten down and underperformed for so long, you're going to get a mean reversion in that trade, right? That's like a, a solid argument that I can probably get behind. Um, and I think ultimately we do get some of that. But the truth is the data that we're looking at currently has yet to suggest that that's the bet that we want to be making, right? For right now anyway, I think it's more of a rising tide lifts all boats. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe U.S. keeps outperforming a little bit. Maybe they, they work their way together, mm -hmm. right? I think ultimately there'll be an opportunity where we, we're going to want to overweight international and underweight America and kind of play that relative strength. And that might happen. That's just not the bet that we want to be making today. Let's reevaluate in the first or second quarter and, and, and maybe at that point, but we're just not seeing it today. Tim, okay. well, let me ask you, Tim, how do you think about building your global portfolios? Do you, are you overweight the U.S.? Over, how do you think about international as a, as a role? Yeah, so we definitely have international developed in our portfolios. I would say relative to a global market cap weighted index, we're underweight international. Partly that's because Europe has not been able to get out of its own way for the last decade, right? So each time they seem to get started on that path to growth, they shoot themselves in the foot. There's austerity, there's central bank policy, there's a number of factors that have caused them to not be able to get off the ground. That being said, we still do have some international developed exposure, right? It is one of the cheapest buckets in the world. And so if you think about crafting a diversified global portfolio, you want to have some exposure to the stuff that everybody hates, right? So within our international developed exposure, we take a little bit of a barbell approach, right? We have one strategy that invests in quality dividend paying companies. And we have another strategy that's actually a little bit more high octane, very discounted deep value. Hmm. And so what they're owning right now is European banks and automakers. 
And so it's a trade that did not work out well for them in 2017 into 2018. More recently, it's turned around. And frankly, if there is a little bit of a reflationary environment, or if people look at a company like BMW or Daimler and say, people are still buying Mercedes-Benz. They're still growing in emerging markets. They're still very high-quality cars and very well-made uh, vehicles that are starting to embrace more and more electric technology in areas that they need to be in. And they're trading in about 50% discounts to their own historical average valuations, which are discounted to U.S. valuations. That's an area that we want to at least have a little bit of exposure to in the portfolio. Obviously, diversified and risk managed within the rest of our holdings. But it's an area that you look at and say, this is what you're owning. And part of the discount there is just people simply hate Europe. Yeah. So you wouldn't want to go a little bit where people hate because that's how diversification and rotation works across portfolio and asset markets. And I, I like that exact barbell of Europe quality or and uh, sort of the deep value. You get you know, a lot of the quality strategies are underweight financials. But JC, your focused research recently is European financials uh, relative to the stocks. I got to tell you, Jeremy, I was given a presentation in Sacramento a few weeks back and I was talking about how we need to be buying European banks, gotta be long banks. You know, if the market's gonna do what it's gonna do, we're gonna see that rotation. There was a guy in the front row who was getting so upset. <laughs> like, he, like, he was very overweight too, and he's just like, his face is getting red, he's sweating, and like, I just kept egging him on, and like, really like, next European bank chart that we wanna bank next, and I just kept going on. And that was just my presentation. I didn't mean to be, to like, you know, pile on him, and he just got up and left <laughs> in the middle of the presentation, just like, just left. And he was in the front row, and he was very slow, uh, uh, and just the whole the whole place was just like you could see everybody laughing and you know just the sentiment that rage that anger um i think from my perspective and the people that i talked to right like tim was saying i mean it's just a, a hated hated area and from these very very hated areas come incredible unwinds i mean just look at tesla recently i mean these journalists are trying to make the stories about themselves instead of focusing on what's actually happening and then you know the poor consumers are reading what these journalists are saying and then man they're just getting their faces ripped off so it's just a beautiful beautiful display of unwinds and sentiment and human emotion I, I, it's fascinating and and they they are very correlated to rates and the, and the question is should they be as correlated to rates like so there's this question of they are for the fact that they are so you're pointing on like the first part of copper and gold and they trade with rates and they do um and the question is do profit margins of the banks correlate as much to rates as they do and i think there's an open question i mean that i've, I've talked with a lot of the, the, the bank strategists who don't think they do, um, but mm -hmm. they just happen to trade that way. And so it's like, well, if, if rates move higher, that banks are going to keep doing well. Um, well, it's a tough dynamic, right? If everybody thinks that they're correlated to one factor, even if they aren't necessarily are, people will trade them that way regardless. It's, it's like the yen and risk on and risk off. Like, why mm -hmm. is the yen the, the risk off currency of the world? Right. Or it's like inflation statistics. People talk about inflation statistics. Well, you can't believe it. It's government data and inflation's way higher than it says it is. Well, if the Fed's relying on government data, the Fed's setting interest rate policy, people are trading off of CPI numbers. Well, that's the true data there. It's not what you may think it is or what it may look like when you start digging under or hatch a conspiracy theory on why inflation's higher than it appears to be. If the data is what people trade on and rely on, or if the correlation is what people look at and rely on, then that's what you need to rely on, basically. And there's also an allocation correlation, right? So you look at emerging markets are the perfect example. Um, my friend Mark Dow out in Southern California, he, he says it perfectly. You know, the argument that he makes is that it's more of an allocation correlation. So emerging markets, for example, they don't all have the same economy. Some are more, you know, technology IT oriented. Some have more natural resources. But from a behavioral standpoint, when the PMs are like, we need EM exposure, they're like, just buy all the EMs. So you know, even though Brazil and India have nothing to do with one another, right, in, in terms of their economies, from an allocation standpoint, they do. Um, actually, just to follow up, so in terms of technical analysis, how are they different? For example, EM in some way, you know, because the China dominance, the China tech dominance um, becomes very concentrated. It's actually more concentrated than the U.S. Uh, in terms of the top five, six stocks. Like when you do your technical analysis, like how do you, how do you, you know, treat these different regions differently? 
Right. That's a good. That's a good point. I think it's important to define what technical analysis is. I think that gets lost in the shuffle. People think, oh, squiggly line up, squiggly line down, head and shoulders, and funny names for patterns. Like that's not technical analysis. Like that might be a form of technical analysis. But to me, technicals are the study of the behavior of the market and therefore market participants. That's what we're doing. We're studying the behavior of the market as opposed to the goods and services that a particular market deals with. I don't care how many shoes Nike sold. I care what the market thinks about them, right? That, so, and then to your point, when there are certain emerging markets that have their top weight, their top components have much higher weightings than the top components in America, you see that in a lot of countries, right? I mean, yeah. the, these indexes are much smaller, right? It just That's just a function of what it is. And understanding the components of the indexes you're analyzing is part of technical analysis, right? We're analyzing the behavior of the market. So you have to understand what's in it. We talked about communication. 40% of the communication index is two stocks, right? You know, 25% uh, of the discretionary sector is one stock. In, Indi in India, you know, 50% of the energy sector is one stock, right? So I think it's important to recognize that we do a lot of equal weighted work mm -hmm. where we'll take an index and we'll broaden it out and equally weighted so you're not getting that, you know, top heavy drive. So we look at both, um, but we don't necessarily look at technical analysis differently from country to country. The technical analysis remains exactly the same. We're studying supply and, de and demand dynamics and that's really just human emotion, fear and greed. And we use a lot of charts because all a chart is is a visual representation of those changes in equilibrium between supply and demand. And it just so happens that the best way to visualize that is in chart form. So yes. I look at 5,000 charts a week. I mean, that's just what we do. We're happy to take your calls at 844-942-7866, 844-WHARTON. Uh, we're, we're talking with J.C. Peretz of All Star Charts, Timothy Hussar of Wharton Hill Investment Advisors. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We have Lee Chen Ren in the studio. Um, so, Timothy, as you think about the challenges of building portfolios, what, what are your biggest struggles today when you're thinking about what you're trying to, to do for clients? You know, for clients, it's managing uh, the portfolio so that it meets their return objective as well as their desire to reduce risk all along the same time. Everybody would love a riskless portfolio, right? But they like also it was have... this year. It's all up. <laughs> yeah, that's Straight right. Up. No volatility and twenty percent returns. That's great. <laughs> Every year would be like that. That'd be fantastic. Um, so the biggest challenge I, I continue to hit at it is just that within the fixed income market, which you do need to have as part of a diversified portfolio. You're just getting so little for yield, right? And if we do have a reflation trade in rates, you own anything more than two or three year debt, you're going to get clobbered on price risk, right? Because duration has increased so much. If you look at the AG index, the duration of that right now is about 6.9. If you look at any sort of bond out there within European markets, it's closer to 10. If you look at muni bonds, so a lot of our clients are high net worth clients who need tax diversified income or tax advantage income. Muni yields across the spectrum. If you go into New Jersey and buy a triple B rated bond that's suspect quality, you're getting basically a return of 1%. <laughs> that's not very attractive to me. So you have to look at alternatives for better yield. The problem is that the more you step out on that yield curve, the more risk you take on, right? I always like to say there's no such thing as free yield, right? So if the risk free yield is 1.5%, the further you get away from that, granted, the more risk you take on. So that's a big question for us as we say, equity markets are going to have periods of volatility. We've seen that in the last 10 years at multiple points in time. They will continue to have periods of volatility. So how do we manage saying equity allocations have risen because we've seen the market rise 30% in the US this year and 20% in Europe and 20% in EM? Let's make sure we're not getting over our risk budgets here and not just shifting into low-yielding debt that has incredible price risk if yields move higher. So that's the biggest question in our world, yeah. and managing that dilemma for clients. Yeah, the, that is that. there's been more papers around about the death of 60-40, mm -hmm. and like, because of just the tips yields being so low and getting real diversification mm -hmm. is getting harder and harder, and, and what do you do? Mm -hmm. And so equities are expensive, but maybe bonds are more expensive than stocks. Yeah, and you know, even within the equity realm, we tilt towards dividend quality growth companies. Um, you know, tilting directly towards value has been very difficult because what do you own when you buy value? You buy banks who are correlated to the yield curve. You're buying companies like U.S. Steel that are trading at a three times P.E. and the chart just looks awful. So if you're tilting towards value, you know, what exactly are you owning? Well, 
for our portfolios and how we shift them, you know, we want to make sure that we're making sensible tilts in our allocation and managing risk along at the same time as balancing the overall volatility picture that goes on there. So it's a difficult question. It's a difficult proposition. You know, in some ways, we have to kind of acknowledge the fact that if the Fed's going to be on hold, and this perception that, oh, they should raise rates back to 4 or 5%, which is not going to happen. This isn't the 80s. This isn't the 70s. They're not raising rates that high. If they're going to be keeping rates on hold at 15 to 2%, that's what I was getting at with the question to Professor Siegel. Is this a new normal for valuations? Is a 20 PE the new 15 PE, right? So it seems like it is. If you go and look at consumer staple stocks that have paltry growth, 3%, they pay a dividend yield of two and a half to three percent. Okay, so all in return there is around five to six percent. You're paying a 22 PE for that company. You're not getting it for 14 times earnings. That's just the reality of the world we live in. And so part of that's adjusting to that and saying, how do we adjust this new normal? We have to own things that appear more expensive than they should be, in quotes. But frankly, that's the world that the Fed's giving us. And if that low interest rate or that low cost of leverage is enabling companies to have a higher buyback and dividend yield, in addition to pretty meager earnings growth, well, that's how you get to a 7 or 8% return across your stock allocation. And, and, and JC, the charts on steel, you're a little, I saw you shaking your head on the U.S. steel chart. No, to Tim's point, you know, I, the U.S. steel chart doesn't look fantastic, but steel in general, the steel index just broke out. You know, maybe U.S. steel didn't get the memo, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the index as a group, base metals, you know, we talked about copper before, base metals look good. Take a look at aluminum. You know, if, if you are buying this emerging market story and rotation into EM, you gotta be buying the the base metal story too, right? They're gonna be moving together. That well, the bet that we want to be making is that they will be continuing to move together. So to me, it's a similar trade that mm. base metal emerging market sort of story. They really look, uh, you know, caterpillar, right? Like those are the, you look at all these charts; they're identical. They all look exactly the same. Have rates always been correlated positively? Po higher U.S. rates better for EM? Is that a more new phenomena? Or is it that just tied to the growth, global growth dynamics? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about global growth. You know, Tim could probably speak to that. Um, but in terms of correlation and the way that they move and trade together, yeah, absolutely. For sure, copper, copper, gold. Copper, and, gold ratio. Regional banks versus REITs look identical to the U.S. 10-year yield. I think if you look at the last time that EM performed very well consistently over a period of time was the early aughts, right? And during the early aughts, rates were rising across 10-year, rates were rising across the short-term portion of the curve. So that was the last prolonged period of EM expansion in terms of equity price appreciation, and that's when rates were rising. So I think it's just more that sentiment trade of higher yields, higher growth, higher inflation, more positive for emerging market equities. Do you get the question, why international at all from your clients? You know, sometimes, yes. Occasionally, a client will say, why do we even bother with this area? And again, it's part of how we educate our clients that we want to have exposure to some areas that they may dislike. You know, we say in a diversified portfolio, there will always be one asset that you hate, right? It's not good to love every single asset in your portfolio because when one zigs, the other should be zagging, right? So. You know, we've gotten that question on occasion, but most of our clients understand that it's a piece of the puzzle. And frankly, we haven't been uh, in a significant weighting within international developed or EM relative to our U.S. weighting, which has done incredibly well. I have a question uh, talking about charts. Like, there's lots of talk about alternative data. You know, right now all the you know data, standard data are available. So to get the edge, you know, for charts or for your clients, do what kind of alternative data do you do? You, do you guys look? That's a fantastic question, and I think about this daily. So our area of expertise is in analyzing the behavior of the market and therefore market participants, right? So when it comes to alternative data, I think one of the biggest flaws that we that, that out there is sentiment data. It's very, very, very difficult to get quality sentiment data. Uh, Jason Gofert over at sentimenttrader.com, shout out Jason, does a fantastic, in my opinion, does the best job of, of anybody out there at, at aggregating it. And I think he would even agree, it could get so much better. So I have my, you know, my data guys and my, you know, my guys uh, that build stuff for me, working on this extensively we've we've made some inroads but you know trying to get the sentiment data that we want very selfishly is something that's on my mind constantly i wish i had a good answer but, to tell you that i found it but, but I, isn't I'm your answer that price is the ultimate sentiment indicator a hundred percent 
when I ask JC, when I get asked, JC, what's the, the your, your favorite technical indicator? It's price, right? Everything after that is a supplement to price. Yeah. But this could where be they, a very good supplement where to they, price. Where, where they disconnect. When, yeah. when, 100%. when you think about a sentiment, I usually think about it like a different views of sentiment. For example, there are a lot of textual analysis of company investor calls, right? That somehow, you know, indicate some of the early sentiment versus how investors, you know, react to those and and then the you know gets into the price. Like when you're thinking about the sentiment, do you pay special attention to, you know, the there's a lot of data coming out, you know, reading uh, artificial intelligence, reading of all the news, all the company calls, you yeah. know, those kind of uh, data. So I, I think what you're referring to, uh, somebody who does a nice job of that is uh, my friend Andy Swan, uh, like Folio down in Kentucky. He does a really good job of aggregating some of that data for sure in terms of consumer trends and things like that. Because we're more price and behavior oriented, the truth is 95% of the time plus that sentiment data is completely useless. Every piece of sentiment data that we get, where it, it is valuable is only, and I would like to reiterate, only at extremes. When that rubber band has been stretched to the point where when that unwind begins, like it's going to be powerful. If it's not at an extreme, to me, it's just useless noise. We're in our final few uh, moments here of the show. Um, JC, we, you just moved back from West Coast to East. Tell people, we try to get you in the studio here a little bit more often. Tell, tell people a little bit where they can find more about All Star Charts, what you do, the services, just how they, how they can find your information. Yeah, thank you again for having me, Jeremy. You know, uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate I get to talk to investors constantly, so I, I, I encourage emailing me. Uh, I know some of, the, some of the Wharton professors were wondering why this crazy Cuban has such high uh, price targets in, in some of these charts. Uh, email info at allstarcharts.com, and I'm happy to send you the mathematics uh, and reasoning behind that. Um, and then just in general, you know, go to allstarcharts.com, follow me at allstarcharts on Twitter, stock twits. Um, you know, feel free to contact me anytime. I'm easy to find. Uh, happy to chat. And it's uh, one of the things Wisdom Tree and JC, we were able to bring some of JC's content to our blog. We we follow his stuff very closely, and uh, we're, we're looking forward to trying to do more of that in the new year. Uh, and Tim, I think, also been a client of Wisdom Tree. How, how have you, um, where, where can people find out more about Wharton Hill? Yeah, so uh, our web address is wartonhillia.com. You can follow us on wartonhillia on Twitter. Um, and really, we're just an independent wealth manager in the area that frankly, prides ourselves, you asked, about where we find our research and our signal. And really, by being independent, we can source it from everywhere across the globe. So we're not beholden to one view or one direction or another. So we really pride ourselves and be able to craft the best solution for our clients from the bottom up. This has been a great conversation. Always great to get two guests in the studio for the hour. JC, thank you. Tim, thank you for so much for coming. Uh, Patty Hall, our producer, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Have a great new year, everybody. We'll see you in 2020. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. Site from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.